0: Hello, and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and today's guest, Peter Valentine, is an adjunct professor at James Cook University in environmental management and conservation. His focus on matters world heritage began through involvement in Australian tropical rainforest conservation, and he subsequently became became a member of the International Union for Conservation of Nature, World Commission on Protected Areas, in 1989. He's been intensely involved in natural heritage across Australia, throughout the world for many decades, assisting with the evaluation of nominations, establishing a graduate university program in world heritage management, participating in the management and evaluation of several World Heritage Sites, serving terms as director and chair of the Wet Tropics Management Authority, and serving as a natural heritage expert on the Australian Heritage Council. He's also the author of the recently released gorgeous hardback book, World Heritage Sites of Australia. Peter Valentine, welcome.
1: Thank you, Magdalena. Pleasure to be with you.
0: You're pretty uniquely qualified in, in World Heritage expertise. Um, is, did you always want to go into this area? Is this something that suddenly you, you looked around yourself and said, wow, I really know a lot about this?
1: I, I didn't always want to go into it because I, I originally was trained in, uh, in biogeography and that led me into protected area management and I therefore became familiar of World Heritage. but. I realised there was a a wonderful array of natural heritage that made up part of the World Heritage Convention, and as I got more and more involved with that, I began to see that this is a fabulous convention and one that's contributed enormously to the protection and conservation of our natural and cultural heritage. So uh, that's what drew me to produce a, a course for students, for graduate students, and uh, I wanted to share that uh, uh, knowledge and pleasure of our world heritage with more people. That's what eventually led to the book, of course.
0: Mm, wonderful. Look, I'm, I'm going to um, ask you a lot more about, uh, about how the book came about and about um, aspects of the book and, you know, even the, the importance mm-hmm. of... Um, identifying and protecting World Heritage sites. But before we get into that, can I just ask you to give us a little flavor, um, just a little bit of a reading from the book? And I will say that it's a visual book. It's a big, beautiful coffee table book, but also there's a lot of information in it. So maybe just a taste of that would be brilliant.
1: Okay. Well, I I might just read from the introduction to World Heritage, uh, uh, the first chapter in the book. One pathway to the establishment of the World Heritage Convention began with the ancient Nubian monuments at Abu Simbel, part of Egyptian heritage from thousands of years ago, and a decision to build the Aswan Dam across the River Nile. Facing the potential destruction of this exceptional legacy, the governments of Sudan and Egypt asked the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization to help their attempt to save at least some of the history that was threatened by the dam. In 1959 UNESCO launched an international campaign seeking cooperation and financial support to relocate the temples urgently ahead of the rising waters. Some 50 countries cooperated with funds and expertise. This amazing project succeeded in preserving ancient Egyptian culture by dismantling, relocating to dry land and reassembling these huge temples and statues exactly as they were. It demonstrated that international cooperation for heritage protection could achieve great outcomes. More collaboration followed, including the development of a formal convention with the direct involvement of the International Council on Monuments and Sites, ICOMOS. A second path emerged from the National Park Movement. At the White House Conference on Natural Beauty in 1965, it was proposed that some natural heritage was of such significance that there should be a means of stimulating international cooperation to protect it. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN, developed ideas about this through its membership, eventually taking a draft agreement to the 1972 United Nations Conference on the Human Environment in Stockholm. There, a single text was agreed upon, linking natural and cultural heritage. This text was adopted by the General Conference of UNESCO on the 16th of November, 1972. The Convention Concerning the Protection of the World Cultural and Natural Heritage, known as the World Heritage Convention, had come to fruition. The World Heritage Convention was one of several multinational environmental agreements that emerged during the 1970s a period when the world became increasingly concerned for the future of the planet and its peoples, perhaps stimulated by the first photographs of Earth seen from space. Some early thinking around world heritage gave a strong focus to the celebratory context. Dr. Jim Thorsell, the long-time senior advisor on world heritage for the IUCN, would often refer to a successful listing of a natural heritage site as the Nobel Prize for Nature, or to the list as Nature's Hall of Fame. Others would write about the best of the best to draw attention to the exceptional qualities of places on the World Heritage list. For some, the listing was a badge of merit, international recognition of a site's quality. Many World Heritage areas are visually splendid and iconic of the country in which they feature. The Taj Mahal of India needs no introduction. This jewel of Muslim art was listed in 1983. The Rock Islands of Palau have been visited by very few people, but aerial views of their natural beauty were well recognised before their listing in 2012. Similarly, Australia's Great Barrier Reef was a global icon long before it was listed, as were Uluru, Kakadu and the Sydney Opera House. Exploring the World Heritage List country by country often creates a little surprise, as we recognise places we have never visited. In the United States of America, we note the famous Statue of Liberty and the Grand Canyon. In France, the Eiffel Tower, part of the Paris Banks of the Seine site. The distinctive forms of Stonehenge are easily recognisable, as is the Great Wall of China. But many World Heritage Areas are not so well known, or have attributes that are not easily discerned. Examples include the Messel pit fossil site in Germany, that allows us to understand much about life on Earth 48 million years ago, Dinosaur Provincial Park in Canada with its rich array of dinosaur remains from 75 million years ago, and the Rolandra Lakes region where an understanding of climatic oscillations combined with the archaeological evidence of human occupation 45,000 to 60,000 years ago, led to the dramatic revision of previous estimates of Indigenous occupation in Australia. Hmm. That's probably giving a little flavour there, Magdalena?
0: I think so. That's that's great. Thanks. And I, I think listeners will... Um realize that there's a lot of fantastic information through the book. Um, I do note that in, uh, it might have been with your conversation that you had with Bob Brown, but um, you have mentioned that it's not the book that you initially set out to to write. I guess your initial idea was to write something a little bit more um, more text-oriented, more academic, perhaps. So, Indeed it was, yes. Yeah, how, how is it that you, you produce something that, um, that is so visually beautiful? What was the path to that?
1: Well, I am really glad I didn't write the book that I had thought I might like to write as an academic because it would have targeted a different audience, a smaller audience, and I don't think it would have presented world heritage perhaps as well as this book does. I came to the recognition as we started the process of writing uh, that um, I really liked the National Library of Australia's notion that this should be a, a book of celebration of our world heritage sites, uh, lavishly illustrated partly from their wonderful material, and supplemented by photographs by myself or students or colleagues and others I identified. Um, and I think, uh, on reflection, I really think this is a much better book than what I would have done originally. I would have certainly made a, a stronger effort to be more technical about each site, and, and I, I don't feel that that's really what's needed For most people, It's, it's understanding the nature of the place. What are the qualities that make it World Heritage? And how are they best described in ways that we can all understand without necessarily being technicians? So although I feel that the text has retained its authoritative nature, I believe that it's much more accessible to a wider audience and hopefully it's been written in a style that makes it interesting as well as informative.: mm.
0: Yes, I mean you talked about um, your own perhaps your own early interest in this came from seeing the, the Earth from the moon. And you know these images kind of they, they stay with us, don't they? They have a, a pretty big impact.
1: They do indeed, and, and I, I think you know that, that magnificent first photograph of the Earth from the early astronauts um that that made an impact on all of us i think at the time who saw that and suddenly realized this wonderful planet there it is a little tiny speck in the universe and that's all we have so i think it's not it's not a coincidence that the 1970s was an era of many international environmental conventions and i place the um the momentum for that around everyone suddenly realizing wow Look at this beautiful planet, and it's tiny, it's small in this in the context of the solar system, not not to mention the universe, and we've got to look after it. Mm.
0: yeah, and in his forward Peter Garrett um talks about how important it is to have public awareness that you know this is this is uh, perhaps equally important in the nature of protection as uh, you know as as designations. Um, is that also part of the impetus to to actually bring in more public awareness?
1: Yes, uh, I really uh, felt that in Australia, particularly, perhaps more so than most other countries, we've had some World Heritage sites associated with conflict and controversy. And I wanted to bring out the other C word, celebration. I wanted to celebrate the wonders of what we have and help people appreciate that. So without doubt, I, my intention with the book is to celebrate each of the sites and to ha- help people understand how significant they are in the context of the world. And uh, that's that's a real target. I would love to think that um, perhaps tens of thousands of Australians will, will read the book and perhaps come away even more committed to the splendours of our natural and cultural heritage and the need to protect them.
0: Mm. Yes. Um, so did you begin with the, the visuals? Were you, you talk to me about how you managed to choose um, from that collection? And, and I think you've also, did you commission some images or you, you used photographic images as well as the uh, the NLA's?
1: Well, look, um, the, the way it progressed was that uh, um, as I wrote each chapter, in my head, I had a clear sense of what I wanted as a visual representation. And so at the end of each chapter, I would, each draft chapter, I would then produce a list of potential illustrations that I thought would be appropriate for that site. Um, In in many cases, I had access to illustrations that would do the job, but but this was a a partnership between the National Library of Australia and myself, and the National Library has access to wonderful resources. So once I had produced a list of potential illustrations, uh, uh, then it went to the National Library to search through their um, resources and see if they had something suitable, um, as well as look at the suggestions I'd made of where such images might be found. So in the end, it was a combination of um, myself identifying what I had in mind as visual representations and the National Library seeking them out, first from their own collection and then from... In some cases, uh, people or individuals that I identified for them, or that I'd contacted and, and got hold of the images. So it's a, it's a combined effort. Mm. Um, a good part of the uh, I- um, illustrations do actually come from the National Library uh, collection, and, and we were—I think there was a generalised target of getting about fifty percent of the illustrations from the National Library collection.
0: Mm. And, and are you pleased with the result? <laughs>
1: Oh, I, I think it's absolutely stunning. I am. I, I, because when you're working with the text, of course, uh, you you know for me, when i'm when I was writing, always in my head, I had images of the places. I knew all the places in in a visual sense as well. But what I needed to write was the information that people could read, and so that's the focus. The text was the focus. Although interestingly, Magdalena, I, I might mention this. Uh, uh, I wrote a pilot chapter, which was Kakadu. And um, I you know, put a bit of work and effort into producing a draft chapter on that. And I have a friend who's an, an artist as well as a wildlife photographer. And, and I gave him a copy of the draft and said, would he mind reviewing it for me and giving me some feedback? And he gave me a wonderful advice. He, he he liked the content, but he said I didn't really connect quickly enough in the chapter. He wanted something in the beginning of each chapter, or this chapter in particular, that allowed people to connect to the the essence of the place. Mm. Now this sounded to me like you know quite artistic work, <laughs> not my normal field of. Academic writing, and I immediately appreciated what he was saying, and so I, I gave it a, a good attempt. I, I wrote an introductory section, which I, I used my imagination and tried to bring into existence a, a potential scene at the site ten thousand years ago, involving, of course, Aboriginal people and and or an Aboriginal person, um, and. Uh, I tinkered with that a little bit and then I gave it back to him he and was, he was happy that it had done the job. And that's pretty much what, sh, what is in the introduction for that chapter. Um, I then sent that draft to uh, the Kakadu board to make sure that I wasn't doing anything that might be considered offensive to uh, Indigenous Australians. And um, so that that was able to be Confirmed, but the the whole idea of that seemed to be important. So I took my uh, friend's advice and I then conjured up a, an imaginative piece of writing at the beginning of each chapter that I hope just engages people with oh, something about the site. And I've had some interesting feedback, in fact, at the Canberra Writers Festival where the book was launched. Uh, there were some people in the audience came to see me afterwards and spoke about uh, about their reading of the book and um, um, they were particularly taken with my introduction to the Fraser Island World Heritage Site Kagari uh, uh, because in that I imagine a, a pebble sort of being washed down from the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area from the Great Escarpment and gradually making its way down into the the coast and then being uh, of course en route taking a long time and being ground down to small sizes and then being washed out to sea and eventually moved around as they are and finally moving north and, and eventually coming to land and settle on Fraser Island and, and creating this new World Heritage Site and, and they felt that was a, a terrific way to get excited about Fraser Island and its origins. So it seems to have worked at least for some.
0: Yes, and, and in addition to that, which is, it is a marvelous way of getting people engaged. It was good advice. <laughs> but in addition to that, um, there, it seems to be um, almost a, a memoir element running through the book as well, because you were so personally involved in, in well, at least in some of those heritage listings. And you know, you've got, you've got a, I guess, your own particular story as well that runs through the book.
1: Yes, look, um, the the publishers felt that uh, a small section of personal engagement would enhance the the book to the reader. So in each chapter, I have a little, usually only a paragraph or so, just in a box that uh, gives my own, or some of my personal experience with it. But in the text as well, because I was involved in so many ways with, with most of the sites in Australia, uh, that it it has a sense of familiarity to me, and I think some of that probably um, spills over into the text a little bit. So I, I see where you you're coming from in terms of the memoir context, oh it is, and, and for me it is. It's a it, you know it was such a pleasure to write this book because every chapter drew on lots of personal experiences as well as technical and authoritative texts and information, etc. Uh, but for all of them, I had a connection, and uh, that that was really a delight for me to bring that into
0: existence. Mm. Yes, I, and I know that it's really quite interesting to read about it, that the path to obtaining World Heritage Listing is often a difficult one against forestry and mining interest. Um, interests Do you, Is that battle ongoing?
1: Um, the, the, yes, one of the things, that, as you say, there's a, there's a section in each chapter that looks at the pathway to World Heritage and in Australia particularly, not necessarily in other countries, but certainly in Australia, some of those were very contentious. But the dimension of that is also community. And I like to celebrate that part of it. So in many cases, without the community, without that community involvement in the politics, we might never have had these places protected. So there's a lot to celebrate about the, um, the conflicts that in some cases precipitated World Heritage nomination and listening, or at least were part of the political debate at the time. Uh, and so, in that pathway section, um, I try to describe uh, some of the uh, elements of of the controversies uh, that were around in particular cases, and and highlight some of the wonderful warriors that uh, you associate with those sites. You know, you can you can't really think about Fraser and Kagari World Heritage Area without immediately thinking of John Sinclair. What an amazing guy. And sad to say, he died while I was writing this book uh, last year. Um, but he has to be acknowledged as having a, an amazing role, despite um, aggressive attacks by the state government of the day. Um, he persisted. The same could be said for Judith Wright in the case of the Great Barrier Reef, and others as well, Margaret Thorsborn and uh, Sadly, Margaret died last year as well. Some of these wonderful warriors passing on. And in the case of uh, Tasmanian, World Heritage Area, I immediately think about Peter Hitchcock, who died earlier this year. Uh, His work with all the rainforest sites was compelling and led to appreciation and, of course, recruiting lots of support, which ended up in successful outcomes. Uh, So... it was, it was uh, this, n- nothing that I arranged, actually, but something that happened as a result of the Canberra Writers' Festival. But I have to say, it was a great pleasure to, uh, to launch the book at the Canberra Writers' Festival with um, Bob Brown. You know, there's a, there's a man who's courageously taken on conservation and in many circumstances um, led the battles despite great resistance. Mm.
0: And, and, Still and continues does. to, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so I guess one downside of, of this book, and I guess any book like this, is that um, as other areas get added to World Heritage listings, they're left out. So you know, Booty Bim Cultural Landscape, for example, which was only just added. Um, yes. It, 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 does that mean, that you know, part two has to come out?
1: <laughs> Magdalena, nothing would please me more. I have, in fact, put a proposal forward for a, a second volume, a follow-up volume, which would focus on the 20 sites or so that I've identified, and others as well, I mean, not just me, as being potentially suitable World Heritage Sites, and, and they are magnificent, equally so. Mm. And they've got stories to tell, and I'd love to be the one to tell them. So I, I have worked on a proposal for doing that and I I hope I can manage to persuade others that it's a worthy exercise but I would see it as much the same as this volume uh, but it would uh, focus on those uh, 20 or so sites that um, are deserving but have not yet been nominated.
0: Yes, these are the ones at the back of the book that you list as tentative.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, some of them are tentative. There's only two left in the tentative list because Bim was uh, was already listed this year so that made our 20th site and um, but there's two more on the tentative list, extensions to the Gondwana uh, rainforest site uh, a couple of extra places in New South Wales and South Queensland and of course then the Great Sandy region which is the mainland area that's somewhat similar to Fraser Island Kagari so Um, they're the the only two now left on our tentative list although there is a movement afoot within the government to develop a better process for a tentative list because Australia lags in that regard there are many countries that have got tentative lists with 20, 30, 40 sites on them. We've got two, you know it's silly, we've got a whole continent here and and, uh, there's at least another 20 uh, which have been well known for a long time Uh, so Yes, I'd I'd love to see that taken up. We'll see what happens, Magdalena.
0: Yeah, we'll be watching closely. It's, um, I guess the, the book itself, um, and, and indeed probably all of your work, tells a broader story about the need for protection and conservation and how critical it is. Um, you've been involved in this area for a long time, and obviously the world is changing pretty quickly and dramatically. Um, do, you, do you feel like um, there's a growing hunger for the work that you're doing that's different to what you've always felt? Is, is something changing now?
1: Yeah, that's a a challenging issue for us to grapple with. Um, uh, There are moments when I share the feelings of despair, and that's because we have a failed leadership system, uh, not just a failed social system, but the leaders are are not the ones we elect. Uh, Leadership is coming from the wider community. And I think as the wider community gets more and more engaged with the reality of climate change and the threats to the environment which spill over to threats to our whole society um, I think people will be more interested in finding out the meaning and significance of these fantastic places which we do have to work hard to protect so um, I am hopeful that our society will continue to engage Uh, with our heritage and see the important work that needs to be done to uh, identify it and protect it, conserve it. Uh, And at the same time, that might flow over to our realisation that we could be a much better society and let's see if we can't do things to make the whole community better off in so many ways. So I think it's not... You know, the issues of environmental concern are not separate from the issues of social concern Mm. that have emerged in in recent times. And it's very interesting because you can find examples of that in lots of our world heritage sites. They can trigger um, some interesting ideas for uh, change.
0: Mm. And I guess that's one of the the beauties of the book is that it is so... I guess it's so visually attractive that, you know, visitors to, to to the house would naturally gravitate towards it. One can hope that it opens dialogues that go further.
1: Indeed, indeed, and uh, there's a there's an element that the World Heritage uh, Committee uses. It's part of the convention, which talks about um, one responsibility that governments have, apart from identification, conservation. Uh, protection and transmission to the next generation and that's a term called presentation and that's a deliberate uh, acknowledgement that a lot of our world heritage sites won't be immediately understood by simply looking at them and there's a, an opportunity and a, and a responsibility for all of us to help present the site in a way that uh, citizens can fully appreciate them and uh, it, of course, I would say that's, that's one of the functions of this book is to provide presentation for our World Heritage Sites. But there's lots and lots of different ways that's done. Some of that's done, uh, for example, within the, an appropriate ecotourism industry or a tourism industry that focuses on communicating. And that, that happens in many sites. Uh, people get help in understanding what they're seeing through uh, the site managers, whether they're national parks or other organisations that might manage the uh, the properties. And uh, visitor centres do a fantastic job of communicating uh, some of that material. So maybe the outcome of presentation is to have a, a much better informed and active society. Uh, people, I, I've often been with people when they've First seen aspects of World Heritage sites, and and they're astonished and amazed by it, and uh, they immediately want to act. You know, there's a even in just enjoying the site, there's a kind of call to arms that people have. They they see the wonders. For example, I worked for uh, quite a few years with a colleague, Alistair Bertles and others on the dwarf minky whale sharks in the Great Barrier Reef, and we found with every Every time we were with people who had their first experience with these whales, which they could swim with, and they were just snorkeling on the surface and come eye to eye with this absolutely magnificent creature. And these have wonderful eyes. They look in your own eyes. You feel they've sort of penetrated to your soul. And uh, people come out of the water after that just absolutely committed to protection. They, They immediately feel... Oh, this, these animals have to be protected, and that's just one small part of that particular world heritage area. So th- it's getting an, o- an opportunity for action that's often missing. We, we um, you know, people enjoy it, but then they might go home and don't have the opportunity to act.
0: Mm. Yes, wonderful. Well, that is all we have time for. um, But thank you very much, Peter. And uh, maybe just let us know where people can find out more about you and the work you're doing and the book.
1: Uh, There's a little bit of information uh, on the uh, National Library of Australia website. um, And I have, I'm just starting a a blog, which eventually will, Uh, develop into a bit more writing along these lines Magdalena so perhaps with your permission I'll let you know when something's up and running
0: perfect and I will include it in the show notes so people can find out more
1: okay terrific lovely talking with you Magdalena thank you for having me
0: thanks so much for your time